Glenn Scotty Wolf was a pilot, a hotel manager, an insurance agent, and he was even an ordained Baptist minister. But more than all that, Glenn Scotty Wolf was a world record holder because he was married 31 different times. Five of his marriages ended in death, one in annulment, and 25 in divorce. His final marriage in 1996 was a publicity stunt in which he married Linda Lou Taylor, who was the women's record holder for the most marriages at 24. After their wedding, the couple spent one week together and went their separate ways, he to California and she to Indiana. Now we might hear this and think it sounds rather amusing and foolish, or perhaps we chuckle when we hear about the eighth marriage of Zsa Zsa Gabor, which lasted all of one day. We might agree with Britney Spears, who said that her first marriage, which lasted for 55 hours, was a joke that went too far. But friends, the truth is marriage and divorce are no laughing matter. I could make this point by telling you how Glenn Scotty Wolf's obituary said that none of his wives and only one of his 40 children attended his funeral, and the son who attended was repeatedly described as being immensely bitter in the obituary because Wolf's antics destroyed the lives of literally hundreds of people. I could make this point by appealing to many of you who have suffered through the terrible pain and ruin of divorce. Maybe as a kid you watched your parents divorce. Maybe you have been through divorce and experienced the sorrow firsthand. But I want to make the point about the seriousness of divorce today a bit differently. As I was preparing this sermon, I learned that a man who has been extremely influential in evangelical Christianity in Houston, who held a pastorate at one of the largest and most influential churches in our area, who taught at one of our city's Bible colleges, who I have spoken alongside at conferences, and whose kids I used to minister to as a youth pastor, divorced his wife and went to live with the man obliterating a 20-year-long ministry and decades of marriage and, and parenting, leaving a shocking and horrific trail of desolation in his wake. In the world hears something like that, and they say, well, this is no big deal. Divorce happens. Now he's living his truth or some such garbage. But friends, when you see the wreckage of something like this, or if you have lived through the wreckage of divorce, you know that divorce is a deadly serious matter. It is no joke. And we're going to see this morning as we, as we look at the Lord Jesus and what he has to say about divorce today as we continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Today we're going to be in verses 31 and 32. And as you're turning there, let me review briefly what we've seen in the last few weeks. We're in a section of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus begins by making this massive proclamation in Matthew 5:17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And here Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the old covenant, the covenant made by God with Israel through Moses, grounded in the Old Testament law. And Jesus says all of that, all of the Old Testament, it points to the coming of the Christ. And now I'm here. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Old Testament law. And so the Old Testament stands fulfilled. Its legal force has concluded. Now that doesn't mean it's been, it's, it's been struck out of the Bible. No. But the old law no longer exerts binding legal force upon people. Paul said it like this in Ephesians 2.15. 
Christ's death has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Jesus is the end of the old covenant. And Jesus is also the beginning of the new covenant, which he has inaugurated by his death. And so Jesus stands between the old covenant, the old era, and the new era. And as the end of the old and the beginning of the new, Jesus alone has the right to decide to what extent the ethical demands of the old should continue into the new. And friends, if we are believers in Jesus Christ today, the first thing you need to know is we are not obligated to keep the law of the Old Testament, but that does not mean that we're free to live however we want. God's people today are still to be people of obedience, but we obey the commands that come from Jesus, either directly or by his apostles. We obey the commands of the New Testament. But many of these New Testament commands are deeply connected to the commands of the Old Testament law. And that's what we've been looking at in the second half of Matthew chapter 5. In this part of Jesus' sermon, Jesus talks about the Old Testament law and the way that it was interpreted by the religious leaders of his day. And Jesus authoritatively explains that the way the law was being interpreted in his day was incorrect. And as he does that, he issues new commands that reflect God's true intentions behind the old law. And these new commands are binding on his disciples, his disciples then and his disciples now. Now, in our last two sermons, we looked at how Jesus dealt with two parts of the old law that came from the Ten Commandments, the prohibition against murder and against adultery. And in both of these cases, the commands were interpreted in Jesus' day rather literally. The thought was, well, if I don't actually kill someone or I don't actually have adulterous sex, then I'm okay. But Jesus rejects this interpretation. Because Jesus shows that God's true intention in these matters goes beyond the letter of the law to a posture of the heart. The murder command isn't just about killing someone. Jesus says you're liable to the murder command if you give yourself over to sinful anger. The adultery command isn't just about having adulterous sex. Jesus says you're liable if you give yourself over to lustful thinking. See, Jesus is setting forth the ethic of the new covenant for the church age. And so far, we've seen that this ethic is intensified. It is more demanding than the ethic of the Old Covenant. And that's what we've seen up until the point that we're at today. Now, today, Jesus is going to take on divorce, and we're going to see three things this morning. First, Jesus introduces this subject by quoting the false interpretation of the Old Testament law that was held by the religious leaders of his day. Second, Jesus is going to correct their error by showing God's true intention in the matter of marriage and divorce. And last, we're going to talk about some pastoral and practical implications of Jesus' teaching on divorce. Start with the first point. And here Jesus is going to introduce this subject by quoting the false interpretation of the Old Testament law held by the Jewish religious leaders of his day. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, unlike what we saw in our last two sermons, this time Jesus does not start by quoting from the Ten Commandments. In fact, what he quotes here is not a part of the Old Testament law at all. The words, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, are not found in the Old Testament. So what is Jesus quoting? Well, this is apparently an interpretation of the Old Testament law that came from the Pharisees, the popular teachers of the law, who were massively influential in the synagogues. Now, around the time when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees were really, really interested in the subject of divorce. 
I'm not sure if you've noticed, but in the bulletin, you'll see the title for today's sermon is Jesus on Divorce, the Shorter Version. And the reason I picked that title is because later in this book, in chapter 19, the Pharisees are going to come challenge Jesus on the question of divorce because the Pharisees at this time were just so hung up on divorce. Now, Matthew 19 is a lot longer than our passage today. That's the long version. Today's the short version. But in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce, Jesus does something very interesting. He doesn't start by talking about divorce at all. Instead, he starts by talking about marriage. And I think it's a very good way for us to talk about this subject. Often when people want to talk about divorce, they say, well, what are the rules? What are the exceptions? But let's be like Jesus today. Let's couch this discussion by thinking about God's intention for marriage. We looked at this last week in detail. Genesis 2.24 is the key text. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The Bible says a marriage involves two elements who make three moves. The two elements are one man and one woman, not some combina- other combination of people. One man and one woman. And as they come together, they make three moves. First, they forsake what had been their primary allegiance to their own parents. Second, they form a new primary allegiance to one another. And third, a union is formed. The man and his wife become one flesh. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that union is the result of sex, but being about one flesh is more than just about sex. This is about a closeness and a shared common life between the spouses. And that's what the Old Testament says about marriage. Now, we might be tempted to say, well, that's true, but that was the Old Testament. And the Old Testament stands fulfilled, so now we can redefine marriage however we want. But not so fast. Because in Matthew 19, when Jesus talks about marriage, he quotes Genesis 2.24, and he repeats this definition. And so even though we're under the New Covenant today, Jesus says this same definition of marriage is still in force. Marriage between one man and one woman is the one and only type of marriage that God recognizes, that God's Word recognizes, and this is the only type of marriage that the people of God can and should recognize. But what about divorce? Before we get into the Pharisees' interpretation of divorce, let's see what the Old Testament says on the subject. In the Old old Law, divorce is explicitly mentioned only a handful of times. In Leviticus 21, we read that priests are not allowed to marry divorced women. In Leviticus 22, we read that the divorced daughter of a priest was allowed to eat sacrificial meat which had been given to her father. In Numbers 30, we read that a divorced woman must keep any vow she has made. And in Deuteronomy 22, we read that a man who marries and then falsely accuses his wife of having not been a virgin on their wedding night is forbidden from ever divorcing her. But all of these references to divorce are very brief. They presuppose that divorce happens, but they say nothing of how divorce happens or when divorce is justified. There are other passages in the law, like Exodus 21, which seem to imply something similar to a divorce in situations involving marriages with family slaves. But again, even in these passages, we do not find a general divorce law. Really, the only passage in the entire Old Testament law which talks at any length about divorce and the only passage which mentions the certificate of divorce that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5 is found in Deuteronomy 24, 
verses 1 through 4. And if you've got a Bible, I really want you to turn to Deuteronomy 24. We really need to understand this passage before we proceed further. Because of the four times that Jesus speaks about divorce in the Gospels, three of them are directly related to the interpretation of this text. So Deuteronomy 24, I'm going to read the first four verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, these verses are describing a situation in which a woman gets divorced and remarries somebody else, and then that second marriage ends for some reason, and God, through Moses, says in this scenario, this woman is forbidden from remarrying her first husband. Why? Moses says because of defilement. This same verb is used in Leviticus 18 to describe the results of adultery. Initially, this woman had one husband. They had sex. There was a one flesh union. But then the marriage ended in divorce. Then she remarried. Then she had sex with a man other than her living ex-husband who she had already been joined to. And Moses says that's similar to adultery. It's not actually the same as adultery under the Old Testament. She is not liable to the death penalty as adulterous Israelites were because of the divorce. But something similar to adultery has happened. The initial marital union has been breached because of the new sexual union, and so the first union cannot be resumed. All right, that's the logic of Deuteronomy 24. Now, unfortunately, over the last few centuries in the English-speaking world, there has been great confusion about this passage because of a mistranslation in the King James Version. The King James translators read Deuteronomy 24, and they thought this was God creating a right of divorce and legislating how divorce should happen. So if you read Deuteronomy 24.1 in the King James, basically it says if you don't like your wife, write her a bill of divorce and kick her out. But in the Hebrew, that's not what this verse says. This is not a command or a prescription for divorce. Rather, this is a description of a hypothetical legal scenario. If someone doesn't like his wife and happens to divorce her with a certificate of divorce, and if her second marriage ends, then here's the prescription, here's the command, then she cannot return to her first husband. And every modern translation I know of, including the New King James Version, has corrected this. Their translations accurately reflect the Hebrew. So Deuteronomy 24 is not instructing or commanding divorce. It is prohibiting the remarriage of people who have previously divorced one another. And this is the major text that talks about divorce in the entire law. And what that means is that, in truth, there is no divorce law in the Torah. God never says in the Old Testament, here's when you can get a divorce and here's how you should do it. Never. 
And later, in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees confront Jesus about divorce, Jesus tells them that. You might remember this, Matthew 19.8. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now, Jesus here is not saying there's some divorce law hidden somewhere in the Old Testament law that Moses made up outside of the inspiration of God. No. When Jesus says this, he knows there's no part of the Old Testament law that explicitly gives a right of divorce. What Jesus is saying is this. Yes, divorce has happened. The Torah never said that they could. But Moses allowed them outside the Torah. Yes, the Torah regulates what should happen to divorced people, but it never actually approved of divorce. And so, friends, we need to know there is no divorce provision in the old law. Moses invented a right of divorce outside the law because of the sinful hard-heartedness of married people towards one another, in which one spouse would become sinfully obstinate towards the other and would not relent and demanded a divorce. And Moses, seeing this sinful obstinacy, said, fine, you can get divorced. But eventually Moses died. And eventually the first Israelite generation died off. But you know what didn't change? Hard-hearted people kept wanting to get divorces. And the later generations of Israelites looked to the law to figure out how can we get a divorce. And what they discovered was the only provision of the law that sounded anything like a divorce instruction was Deuteronomy 24. Because it alone talked about a procedure, a bill of divorce. It alone talked about a ground for divorce, something indecent. In Hebrew, ervat debar, a vague term which is found in only one other place in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 23, describing uncovered feces. And so this passage, Deuteronomy 24, began to be seen as the provision of God's law in which God allowed divorce. But this was a twisting of the scripture. Friends, God instituted marriage, not divorce. Man instituted divorce. But the Israelites said God gave us a right to divorce. Now, during the very decade in which Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, there was a major debate beginning within Judaism about this right to divorce. And the debate was among the Pharisees, the most popular religious faction in Judaism. And the Pharisees were debating the meaning of this obscure term in Deuteronomy 24.1, ervad debar, the something indecent that justifies divorce. The question was, what exactly does ervad debar mean? When may a man legitimately divorce his wife? And understand that to the Pharisees, that's how divorce worked. The man got rid of the wife. The wife didn't get rid of the husband. Now, the Pharisees were divided into two camps about what constituted legitimate grounds for divorce. One camp, the school of Shammai, was very restrictive about divorce. They said, ervat debar means adultery, and that's it. They were very restrictive about divorce. But they were permissive about remarriage. They said, even if you get an illegitimate divorce, you can still get remarried. That was the school of Shammai. Their opponents were the school of Hillel. And the school of Hillel was very permissive about divorce. What did they think constituted ervat debar? Well, one scholar summarized their writings like this. Ervat Debar includes, but is not limited to, a woman's infertility, deafness, muteness, epilepsy, tetanus, warts, leprosy. If a wife did not grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, weave clothes, cook food, nurse the kids, and make the beds every day, 
If she failed to have sex with her husband as often as he wanted. If she had a head that was turnip-shaped, hammer-shaped, sunk in or flat at the back. If she had bad posture or thinning hair. A pug nose, a big nose, a small nose. If she had no eyebrows, one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows. If her eyes were too high or too low. If she was cross-eyed. If she had no eyelashes, if her eyes were different colors, if her eyes were as big as a cow's eyes or as small as a goose's eyes, if her eyes were too watery, if she had an overbite or an underbite or was missing teeth, if she had a poor figure, a protruding belly, or a dark complexion, if her feet or ankles were bony or swollen, if she were bow-legged, if she had wide feet, if she could use both her right and left hands, if she ate something her husband had forbidden her to eat, if she visited the home of her parents, if against her husband's wishes, her parents moved into the same city to be near her, if she yelled at her husband loudly, if she spoke to any man other than her husband, if she went outside with her hair unbound, or if she burned her, her husband's supper, it's Irvat Zabar and it's grounds for divorce. Rabbi Akiva went further. He said if a husband found someone he thought was more beautiful than his wife, his wife is guilty of Irvat Zabar and he is entitled to divorce. Ladies, what do you think about this list? I get the sense not many of you are fans of the school of Hillel. Now this is a very... I, know, I have no idea what's going to happen in the next few minutes from next door. We will work it out in the next few weeks. Please, please be indulgent. I will try to be as loud as I can. All right, this is, this is a very, uh, very permissive approach to divorce, right? And unsurprisingly, they were very permissive about remarriage too. So at the very time Jesus is giving this instruction, this debate is raging in the synagogues between these factions, both of which permitted remarriage, one of which was more restrictive than the other about divorce. Now, if you're curious how this debate wound up, the school of Hillel wound up winning. That's the permissive faction. And so Judaism today still holds to that long list as being grounds for divorce. It's very easy to get divorced in Judaism. Just like it's very easy to get divorced in our society, right? You just have to go down to the courthouse and fill out a piece of paper that says, I'm incompatible with my spouse, and you can get divorced and go marry whoever you want. But contrary to this permissiveness... Contrary to this twisting of the scriptures, contrary to these factions arguing about their made-up rules, now the Lord Jesus, the authoritative interpreter of the law, speaks. And this is our second point. Jesus has declared he is the fulfillment of the law. He is therefore its authoritative interpreter. And Jesus looks at the way Deuteronomy 24 has been perverted and this wicked debate. And now with amazing simplicity, Jesus exposes and repudiates the errors of both of the factions in this debate. Because Jesus shows us what God's original intention was for marriage, where the old law was really pointing. And as he does this, Jesus legislates a new and clearer ethic concerning marriage and divorce for the new covenant, for his disciples. Well, what does Jesus say about divorce and remarriage? Well, unlike both of the Pharisaical factions, Jesus is extremely restrictive about both divorce and remarriage. And to make this point and give you a little context for the passage we're going to look at, I'd like to start here by showing you what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage in the other Gospels. 
Let's start in Mark chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, turn there. This is Mark's version of the controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees about divorce, which we will encounter in Matthew 19. The Pharisees challenged Jesus about divorce. Jesus responds saying this was a concession of Moses. This was not from God. Jesus points the Pharisees to Genesis and says this was God's intention for marriage from the beginning. And then in Mark 10, 9, Jesus makes a very profound statement. What God has joined together, let not man separate. If you want to know the, the essence of Jesus' instruction about marriage and divorce, it's this. Marriage is not a social custom. It's not a legal contract. It's not a trick to get tax benefits or citizenship. Marriage is a real union in which God Almighty joins one man to one woman with the intention that they will have a lifelong union. And what God has joined like that, humanity must not undo. Divorce is not God's intention. In Malachi 2.16, we find God's general sentiment about divorce, which is this. The Lord, the God of Israel, says that He hates divorce. God hates divorce. It is totally contrary to His intention for humanity and marriage. What God joins in matrimony, man must not separate. Now Jesus continues. Look at Mark 10, verse 11. Jesus said to the disciples, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. That is the first wife. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is a very restrictive statement about divorce and remarriage, isn't it? Jesus says a person who gets a divorce and marries someone else commits adultery against the original spouse. This is very similar to what we saw in Deuteronomy 24, that a remarried divorcee could not return to her first husband because of defilement, because the exclusive sexual union of the original marriage has been ruptured and severed. But significantly, Jesus says something different than Deuteronomy here. Deuteronomy said that this situation of a remarried person having sex with their new spouse generated defilement. But Jesus says under this new ethic, which he is now articulating, remarriage makes you guilty of something beyond defilement. Now you're guilty of actual adultery. Just like in the earlier commands in Matthew 5, with murder and adultery and lustful thoughts, Jesus is escalating, he's intensifying the demands of the old law for his people. What used to just be defilement is now full adultery. And so divorce is absolutely unacceptable. That's Mark 10. Look now at Luke chapter 16. Jesus here makes a, a statement in a different context. This time he's not interpreting Deuteronomy 24. Now Jesus is talking about money. You might say, why is Jesus talking about divorce in a section about money? Well, remember people sometimes go gold digging. People sometimes marry and divorce and remarry for money reasons. And with that background, Jesus says in Luke 16, 18... Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It's basically the same as Mark 10. Divorce and remarriage constitute adultery. But now Jesus goes further, and he adds that the person who marries someone who is divorced also becomes guilty of adultery. This is not the permissiveness that was rife in first century Judaism. This is not the permissiveness that is rife within 21st century America. 
This is not the permissiveness that is rife within the American church on this matter today, but this is clearly what Jesus says. And this is what Paul thought Jesus taught. Because more than a decade after Jesus' ascension, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Paul says, To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. Paul's writing to married believers, and he says, Here's my command about divorce, but this isn't just my command. This is what Jesus taught when he walked the earth. And what did Jesus say? Verse 10, the wife should not separate from her husband. Verse 11, the husband should not divorce his wife. Neither spouse should seek divorce because divorce is unacceptable. And so believing friends, if you are married, the Bible is very clear. Divorce needs to be off the table. If you're having marital troubles, get divorce out of your mind. Get it out of your conversation. Get it out of the threats you make to your spouse. Because Jesus says that divorce is unacceptable for believers. This is a very restrictive view of divorce. And Jesus has a very restrictive view of remarriage. 1 Corinthians 7.11 But if she does divorce, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That's not a popular command. Many churches totally ignore this. But this is the word of the Lord. Believers who get divorced are not to remarry. They are to remain single in the hope of reconciliation with their spouse. Remarriage is off the table. If you're having marriage troubles and you're thinking, well, I'll drop this one and get another, Paul says, no, you won't. Not if you're a believer. And Paul saying, no, you won't, is actually quoting Jesus, who says, no, you won't, or else you're guilty of adultery. So Mark and Luke and Paul all paint a very uncompromising picture about Jesus' instruction concerning divorce and remarriage. We may not like this, but this is what the Bible says, that we either accept the authority of the Lord or we don't. Divorce and remarriage constitute adultery, period, for anyone who gets remarried and for anyone who marries the remarrying spouse. And if you say, well, adultery isn't a big deal, sin happens, God will get over it and forgive me, let me remind you of what we said in last week's sermon about how Jesus talked about adultery. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now Jesus says that about adultery in the heart. Not the physical act of adultery, but just lustful thinking. But in today's passage, he's talking about the crime of adultery. Full adultery. Now if the inward desire for adultery merits an eternity in hell, and is sin of the gravest sort that we must do whatever we can to fight, and what does the actual commission of, a, of divorce and remarriage, which is adultery, deserve? See, friends, according to Jesus, this is not a light deal. Divorce and remarriage are deadly sins. All right, now with that background, let's now look at Matthew 5.32. And let's see what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about divorce and remarriage. Verse 32, Jesus says, But I say to you, in contrast to the Pharisees, the Lord Jesus now authoritatively says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again, Jesus says easy divorce is out of the question. 
Whoever divorces and gets remarried is guilty of adultery. Whoever marries someone that has been divorced becomes guilty of adultery. And now Jesus adds something new. He says whoever divorces his wife makes the wife commit adultery. They might say, well, how can A divorcing B cause B to become an adulterer? And the answer is, Jesus presupposes that after being divorced, B will go get remarried. And that presupposition is reasonable. The Mishnah, which is the earliest surviving composition of Pharisaical writings, tells us that a valid Jewish certificate of divorce had to state, you are free to remarry any man. In the first century, there weren't a ton of jobs available to women. Women had to get remarried to live. And what Jesus says here is if you put your spouse into that situation, divorcing them so that they wind up having to get remarried, that's sin. Because by so doing, you are stumbling your ex into adultery. Again, this is a very restrictive and demanding view, is it not? Jesus sees divorce as a messy web that generates a ton of adultery and serious consequences before God. Does he not? And Jesus says that is true in every situation except one. Except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now, this is the Greek word porneia. And when used without qualification, porneia is a broad term that refers to any type of sexual sin. This is a broader term than the normal term used to describe adulterous sexual intercourse. This is talking about any type of sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. And Jesus says where porneia exists, this is an exception to the general rule forbidding divorce and remarriage. And to make sure that we really get this, this is repeated later in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 19, verse 9, there Jesus again says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There we find this same exception again. Now, what are we to make of this exception that Matthew records twice, but which Mark, Luke, and Paul don't record? This is highly debated. If you've ever wondered why there are so many views within Christianity about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, it's because people answer this very question differently. Many people have decided the right answer to this question is to accept only what Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians say and to basically minimize the exception in Matthew. These people want to forbid all divorce and remarriage. And to justify that conclusion, they try to interpret the exception in Matthew 5 very narrowly. They say, well, in this case, porneia is not a general term for sexual sin. Here, porneia means something else. They either say it means the sexual sins that are listed in Leviticus 18, about sex between family members, or homosexual sex, or interspecies sex. Or they say this is only talking about sexual sins which were committed before marriage. But the problem is, there is no evidence in the text of Matthew's gospel that justifies the idea that Jesus here is using the term porneia in any way other than its, original, or its usual meaning, as a general term for sexual sin. In fact, you would never come up with any of these interpretations pretending porneia means something more limited than a general term for sexual immorality if you were just honestly trying to interpret Matthew's gospel by itself. You would only come up with these views if you've already decided that you want the answer to be that divorce and remarriage are never acceptable. And so as a result, you try to scramble and figure out how to get rid of these exceptions. But I think a more faithful approach to the scripture is not to hit the mute button on any of these passages. 
we must listen to all that Matthew and Mark and Luke and Paul have to say. And so again, the ordinary rule is divorce and remarriage constitute adultery. And there is one exception to that rule here, which is that when the cause of the divorce is porneia, which we interpret according to its ordinary meaning as any sexual sin up to and including adultery, then, then that's the exception. And the logic is this. Like Deuteronomy 24, the presence of porneia has ruptured and severed the marital union. And where this takes place, there is a right to divorce and remarriage. Now, some Christians who want to be really restrictive about this say, no, 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 no. The exception only says there's a right to divorce for porneia, but not to remarriage. However, there are two reasons we should understand that this exception allows both divorce and remarriage. First, the grammar in the Greek here seems to indicate that porneia is an exception not just to the divorce clause, but to the entire statement, including Jesus' teaching about remarriage. And second, in Jesus' day, all Jews believed if you were divorced, you had a right to remarry. There was no category of being divorced without a right to remarriage. And so if Jesus meant to prohibit remarriage for people who are getting divorced because of porneia, I think we should expect that he would have been much clearer about that. So again, the exception in Matthew allows a right to divorce and remarriage when the marriage is breached because of sexual sin. Now we might ask, well, if this is true, why do Mark and Luke and Paul never mention this exception? I think this is the answer. Because of the nature of sexual sin, which severs yourself from the marital union that God has designed and joined you to, and you've gone and joined yourself to someone else, that is so obviously transgressive against marriage that the other biblical writers didn't think this needed to be spelled out. Thankfully, Matthew did. Or else we would today say, hey, look, there's no exception even for porneia. Thankfully, Matthew recorded this so that we know Jesus' thoughts on this matter more fully. But what we've seen so far is that in Jesus' day, some Pharisees were permissive about divorce and permissive about remarriage. Others were restrictive about divorce and permissive about remarriage. But Jesus shows us God's heart on this matter, and so Jesus is restrictive about divorce and restrictive about remarriage. Because divorce is not God's intention. God hates divorce. Because divorce is innately sinful. Because it is an expression of hard-heartedness. Those who want to divorce are hard-hearted towards God, who calls them to forgive and be reconciled with their spouse. They are hard-hearted towards their spouse, being implacable and unforgiving and unwilling to bury the hatchet. Moreover, divorce is also sinful because it severs what God has joined and because it usually stumbles your ex into adultery. And ordinarily, remarriage is sinful because it constitutes adultery and whoever marries a divorced person also becomes guilty of adultery. And Jesus says all of that is true except when there is sexual immorality in the initial marriage. And where sexual immorality disrupts a marriage, there is a ground for divorce and remarriage. But outside of that, someone becomes liable to God's judgment, which merits hell. Now that is some very straightforward teaching from the lips of Christ. And this is very difficult for many of us to hear, and I know that. And frankly, I tell you pastorally, although this command is very clear, this instruction can prove profoundly messy and difficult to apply. And so what I want to finish with today is a last point that contains some pastoral and practical implications of this command. I want to start by making three caveats about what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage. 
All right, number one. The sexual immorality which creates a ground for divorce must be particularly egregious. Now, of course, you say, well, all sin is egregious. That's true. But the clear sense of Jesus' words in these passages, he is restrictive towards divorce. But it doesn't take much imagination to see how somebody could try to twist the scriptures here, right? Somebody could say, well, divorce is permitted where there's porneia, and porneia is a general term for any sexual sin. And in Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, looking on someone with, uh, with lust is adultery in your heart, which is a sexual sin, which is porneia. And everyone at some point has looked on somebody with lust, and so everybody's guilty of porneia, and so everybody has a justification to get out of any marriage that they're in. But to argue that is to twist the scripture against the broader point that Jesus is making here, which is he is restricting divorce. And so I don't think we want to interpret sexual immorality here too broadly. So I think we, we want to ask, when does sexual sin rise to the level of immorality that permits divorce and remarriage? And here are some guidelines that I think are common sense. Where the sexual sin involves more than one person or when it involves criminal conduct. But those are only really broad guidelines. Honestly, a lot of this has to be examined case by case. And I would say, if you are in a situation today, or God forbid you become entangled in a situation in which sexual sin happens in your marriage, and you are considering divorce, please come talk to the elders, and we will try to help you get a biblical outcome. Number two, it seems clear that where sexual immorality occurs, only the wronged party has the right to pursue divorce and remarriage. Again, Jesus is restricting divorce. But a rule that says the only way to get a divorce is immorality and that both the guilty and innocent spouses can then legitimately get remarried creates a perverse incentive to commit sexual sin. It allows an evil back door to access the divorce Jesus is trying to restrict. So I don't think that can be a proper interpretation. Number three, Jesus never commands divorce. The rabbis did. They said if adultery happens in your marriage, you must get divorced. Jesus never says that. Divorce is a right that a sexually wronged spouse may choose to pursue, and it's his or her right to do so, but the New Testament never requires divorce. A wronged spouse hopefully can and will forego that right and choose to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation, which is a very Christian response to sin, is it not? But in the case of immorality, divorce is permitted but not required. Now you may say, well, that's all well and good, but surely there must be other biblical grounds for divorce, right? Well, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul recognizes a second exception to the general rule that divorce and remarriage are forbidden. 1 Corinthians 7, 12. Paul says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. Paul says, I'm going to give a command, and this command relates to a situation that Jesus never addressed while he was on the earth. But Paul is an apostle. He is an authorized spokesman of Christ. And so Paul can speak to this situation with the weight and authority of Christ behind him. 1 Corinthians 7.12 If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So the situation is we have a religiously mixed marriage. Now, Jesus would not have spoken about this in his ministry because while he was on the earth, Jews were forbidden from marrying pagans. So this was not a problem that Jesus had to address. 
But by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, this is a live controversy. Because in Corinth, there are pagan couples. And sometimes one of the spouses in a pagan couple would get converted. And what are these new Christians who are married to a pagan supposed to do about their situation? That's the question. And Paul says, believer, insofar as it's on you, don't pursue divorce. Why? Paul elsewhere says, don't marry an unbeliever. Why does religious incompatibility not give a believer a ground for divorce? Well, verse 14, Paul says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Paul says, believer, if you wind up being married to an unbeliever, don't run from this. This is the greatest and most important mission field in your life, in which you are a conduit of God's grace to your family members. Don't flee from that. But, verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. The believer is not to flee from a religiously mixed marriage. But if the unbeliever wants out, Paul literally says in the Greek, let him or her depart. It is a command. The believer is not to resist if the unbeliever demands a divorce. The believer is not to beg and grovel for the maintenance of the marriage. The believer is to permit the divorce to happen. Now, what Paul seems to be talking about here is a situation in which the unbeliever wants to divorce the believer because of the believer's faith in Christ. A lot of people in the American church today try to claim that their divorce fits into this category when it really doesn't. Well, we were married, but I guess my spouse is an unbeliever and we got divorced. It's 1 Corinthians 7. Well, wait a minute. Did you get married to someone knowing that they were an unbeliever? Did they marry you knowing that you were a believer? Is the faith really about you living out your faith? Or is the separation really about you living out your faith? Or is it about something else? But rarely there is a case like this where a spouse gets saved and the unbeliever just can't stand the transformed person that, that their spouse has become. 1 Corinthians 7, 16 says, In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And I understand this to give a right to remarriage to the believer in this situation. So that is the second case in which there is a biblical ground for divorce and remarriage. In religiously mixed marriages where the unbeliever demands out because of the believer's faith. But you might say, well, what about other situations? And usually at this point we're thinking about abuse, right? I don't have a full time for a, a comprehensive discussion of this now. I'm going to give you my conclusions but not my reasoning. If you're interested in my reasoning, I preached two sermons on divorce last year in 1 Corinthians 7, and I gave all my reasoning there, so go listen to those if you're interested. But what about abuse? Number one, you need to know, if your spouse is abusing you or your child, that spouse is guilty of outrageous sin. Amen? Number two, if you and or your child are the victim of physical or sexual abuse, you need to call the police. Number three, in addition to, not instead of it, in addition to calling the police, if you are the victim of abuse, you need to talk to one of the elders or somebody in this church because abuse is absolutely the church's business. Number four, you are under an obligation to protect yourself and your children from harm, which means you need to withdraw from a dangerous environment. Number five, while you should earnestly desire reconciliation with your spouse, 
Do not be lulled into premature reconciliation with an abusive spouse just because of hollow words claiming repentance that are not backed up by deeds. Number six, an abusive spouse gives overwhelming evidence that he or she is not a believer according to Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6. Number seven, an unrepentantly abusive spouse who winds up separated will usually go start another sexual relationship which will grant the victim grounds for divorce on the basis of sexual immorality. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And where it doesn't, if the abusive spouse continues to terrorize the victimized spouse, I think that perhaps as a very last resort, there are inferences that can be drawn from the scripture that might support divorce. And I think I would counsel that. But because this is not explicitly found in the scriptures, I think we must be very careful in this area. So that's what I would say about abuse. Now let me conclude with some practical exhortations. First today, if you have never been married, you need to know that God created marriage as a lifelong commitment with no easy way out. That might sound overwhelming to you. It sounded overwhelming to the disciples in Matthew 19 because they heard what Jesus said and they said, it's better not to marry. And if that's where you are today hearing this, good. Live in contented singleness until you can accept God's knowledge and, and, and definition of marriage. Second, maybe today you are struggling in your marriage. And I want you to also remember God's intention is that marriage must last for a lifetime. If you claim the name of Christ, I want you to honestly assess your situation. Has your spouse committed egregious sexual sin against you? If so, Jesus says you have the option to pursue divorce and remarriage. You don't have to divorce. You could forgive and reconcile. But you have the right to do it if you want. If your spouse has not sinned against you sexually, is your spouse an unbeliever? If so, and they want to leave, 1 Corinthians 7 commands you should let them leave. If not, then whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, Christ commands and his apostles command that you remain married to your spouse. And if divorce seems tempting to you, realize that's exactly what it is. It is a temptation to grievous sin. It is an outgrowth of hard-heartedness and unrepentance in your life towards God. Because 1 Corinthians 7 says your marriage is a gift from God. Don't be bitter towards God about the good gift he's given you. Be thankful. There's a good reason you have the spouse you have. Be conciliatory and patient and loving with your spouse. Husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Wives, submit to your husbands, provided they don't command you to sin. Go to marital counseling. Commit to work this out. This is the will of God for your life. I think I have great biblical justification to say, this is God's will for your life, friends. If you have been divorced by someone against your will, seek reconciliation and stand ready to forgive. I know this is a difficult teaching, but if you were divorced for any reason other than sexual immorality or abandonment by an unbeliever because of your faith, so long as your spouse continues to live and remains unmarried, I don't see a right to remarriage in the Bible. Trust the Lord. Pray for your ex. Try to forgive. Seek reconciliation. That's the ideal. If you have been divorced and your ex enters into a sexual relationship with someone else after your divorce, or they get married, or they die, I think you're free to remarry, but only marry another believer. Finally today, I want to speak to those of you who are probably hurting a lot because this is a really heavy and difficult subject and I've really piled it on here. And you say, I know I've sinned in this area. What should I do? 
I'm talking here to people who've been divorced for reasons other than that your spouse sexually wronged you or because an unbeliever abandoned you. Or you've gotten remarried in a way that the Bible indicates should not have happened. Friend, before we can hear the good news, we honestly need to evaluate ourselves. If we have sinned in these areas, we need to respond to our sin by turning it over to Jesus Christ. If the Bible has revealed we have sin in these areas, the right response is not self-righteousness. Well, Jesus, you don't understand how bad it really was. Or, well, you know, it happened a long time ago and I don't think about it anymore. No. Friend, have you ever dealt with your sins in these areas with repentance? You say, well, what does repentance look like in these areas? Let me start by saying what it doesn't look like. If you're single and your ex is remarried, don't go trying to break up his or her new marriage. If you have remarried, do not try to repent of your remarriage by undoing your current marriage. You cannot undo the past sins of unbiblical divorce and remarriage by committing more unbiblical divorce and remarriage. So what should you do? Confess your sins to Jesus. Tell him you know these sins were wrong and that they should not have happened. Psalm 32.5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 1 John 1.9 says that Jesus will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess it. So confess your sin to the Lord and receive God's forgiveness. And confess your sin to those you have wronged. And then, friends, move forward in peace. Don't get hung up on the past. You know, Paul had terrible sin in his past, right? He was a murderer. He persecuted the church. But he dealt with his sin before, before God in Christ. And then he wrote these words in Philippians 3. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friend, if you have dealt with your sin, let it go. Because Jesus has forgiven you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus makes all things new. And friends, there is grace and there is mercy and there is forgiveness and there is reconciliation because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And more than that, there is redemption. If you're married today, be faithful to the one you're with and move forward in obedience knowing that God is the God of the second chance. And that he can and will use you to bear real lasting ministry fruit for the kingdom if you let him. And he can redeem your new marriage and your new family for his glory and his good purposes. Or if you're still single, he'll, he'll work with you if you walk in obedience to him and, and, and you've dealt with this sin in the past. So friends, my last exhortation to us today is let us hold marriage in high esteem. Let us understand God's intention for it. Let us deal with our sin and let us move forward in obedience.